Season 4 of Beyond the Plate is presented by Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. I'm going along and we're talking and I'm sautéing this fruit and the fruit is super hot because it's in this boiling wine sugar syrup mixture and I get that tap and it's like, all right, that means plate it. So I spoon it on, cut the bite, put it in her mouth and then like these tears start rolling down her face and I'm like, oh my, I just burnt Julia Childs. This was going so well and then I burnt her, you know. I know what my face felt like, but it was probably really horrified. And then she says just something so kind, like this is a dessert to cry from. Welcome to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey with food and their passion for giving back. I'm Cappy, and we're coming at you with a little bonus episode action. To be honest, this episode is with one of the greatest chefs in America, and it should have aired a long time ago. But here we are with Chef Nancy Silverton. This episode was recorded live from her L.A. restaurant, Osteria Moza. Basically, her and I sat in front of a room full of people that were there to experience a special one night only dinner. This was part of the Wall Street Journal Plus Chef's Table Dinner Series. So thank you to them for having me. Chef and I were actually supposed to meet a little bit ahead of time to get to know each other. But we got to talking about my twins and her being a new grandmother. So everything else kind of took a back seat. It was a great conversation. If you don't know, Chef Nancy Silverton is the co-owner of Pizzeria Moza in Los Angeles and Newport Beach, as well as Osteria Moza, Moza to go and Kiesbaca in Los Angeles. She founded the world-renowned La Brea Bakery, as well as Campanile Restaurant, which was an institution that Angelinos cherished for many decades. She worked with some of the nation's most notable and influential chefs and has also mentored tons of other chefs who have gone on to become award-winning and restaurant owners themselves. Early in her career, she was a Food & Wine Magazine Best New Chef. In 2014, she received James Beard Award for Outstanding Chef, and she was named one of the most innovative women in food and drink by both Fortune Magazine and Food and & Wine Magazine. She has eight cookbooks, an episode on the Netflix series Chef's Table. If you're a fan of that, you may have seen her. And she's super active in fundraising for numerous charities, including No Kid Hungry, which many chefs have talked about on the podcast, and Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation, which also has been talked about. So please enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the plate with Chef Nancy Silverton. And without further ado, I want to welcome... Up here, our two esteemed guests for the evening. Please welcome the host and executive producer of Beyond the Plate podcast, Andrew Kaplan, and the James Beard Award Foundation Award winner for Outstanding Chef and the co-owner of this incredible restaurant, Chef Nancy Silverton. I'm prepared. Hi, everybody. It's good to have you all here. As Alex said, my name is Andrew Kaplan. I host a podcast called Beyond the Plate, where I sit down with chefs from around the world and talk about their journey into the industry and um, how they give back to their community. So a big social impact component. So thank you to Wall Street Journal for having me here. I am Chicago-based. Walking in the 14-degree weather this morning to the train to get to the airport wasn't so glamorous, but when I landed, I do what I always do when I land in LA, and I called my wife and said, why don't we live here? <laughs> Yeah. 
Traffic. Thank you to Wall Street Journal and the Chef's Table dinner series. So to put things into perspective, there's more than 8,000 restaurants in Los Angeles and over a million in this country. And we're here tonight. <laughs> I've had the fortunate opportunity to dine at Grilled Cheese Night at Campanile and La Brea Bakery and right up there at the Mozzarella Bar here at Mozza. Burrata with melted leeks and a whole grain mustard gremolata. Does that sound right? Breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs, that's right. That's right. But uh, before we go any further, Nancy, can you please explain the antipasto that people are about to eat? So we're going to start with a uh, persimmon salad. It's a few uh, persimmon uh, salad, a seasonal salad, and I think that that's one thing... uh, I'm very proud to um, boast about at, at all of my three restaurants on this corner is that we're a very seasonal, seasonal restaurant. And we really embrace and celebrate what is best at our farmer's market. And right now it's persimmon season. So it's a very simple salad uh, based on impeccable ingredients. It's a salad that's built in layers. We start out with... Um, a fruit and nut bread, a very thinly slice uh, of, a, of this fruit and nut bread is on the bottom as the base. And then from that, we build it with layers of uh, a chicory. And this one is a Castle Franco is the variety, which is a very pale leaf speckled chicory. And we layer in there some candied walnuts, I mean, sorry, candied pecans and uh, the persimmons and Parmigiano cheese. And it's uh, dressed with a Dijon mustard and sherry wine vinegar vinaigrette. So I could take either side to this. It would have been nice to have it in front of them to see it, but now everyone's probably really excited to yeah. have it in front of them. And um, let me say now that I'm thinking about it, my favorite, uh, I'm always inspired by the ingredients themselves. And I think it's really important to use them in their, their best form, show them off as in their best light. And this salad always reminds me of just a layer of petticoats. So that hopefully you'll see that, uh, that interpretation when you eat it is that it's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful, um, edible petticoat. Excellent. And I need to digress for a second. I, I like to study my questions a little bit before I start. I didn't get to because Nancy and I got sidetracked. I have newborn twins at home in Chicago, and Nancy is a new grandmother. Congratulations. All right, so we're here at Moza in your dining room. Can you just take us back to the Silverton family dining room and how that influenced you as a chef today? So so I assume you mean growing up, right? Correct, yes. Because my Silverton dining room of my as an adult with children was not, was very different than growing up. You know, uh, as an adult, I was in the restaurant business and uh, my kids ate with me at the restaurant, but we didn't have what was probably the highlight of my, of my youth, which was dinner time. And I grew up in the fifties and that was a very different time than uh, kids that grew up today. Um, we actually did something very unique, and it was called eating together at the table, eating a home-cooked meal prepared by one of the parents, and in my case, it was my mother. It wasn't so much that she was an extraordinary cook. She was a, a great cook, and she refrained from all of the 
sort of the convenience food that was so popular in uh, those days. So she made everything from scratch. But every night we ate together at 6.30. My father came home from the office. My mother was worked, but she worked at home. We uh, had a sister, so it was only four of us, and we each had our places at the dinner table. And that was the time that I learned about politics. I learned about what it meant to win in court. I learned about what script my mother was working on. And it was such an important uh, part of my day and of my upbringing. And because of that, I think it's what led into my passion of what it means to feed people because I'm feeding people at the table, which is the best place to be. And I think today, if more people were at the table, there would be a lot less problems. I agree. Round of applause times two. Because when there's good food and great wine, there's great conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm not going to go into your bio because everyone knows you and why they're here, because if I did rattle off your books and accolades, my time would be up um, by the end of that. But you worked at Michael's a long time ago here with Chef Jonathan Waxman, and you were the opening pastry chef of Spago. Yep. Can you share something you learned that you still may use today from one of those early jobs? I think that, you know, prior to working at Spago, I thought that the restaurant or the the most important part of the restaurant or owning a restaurant or running a restaurant was making delicious food. But when I went to Spago, uh, working with uh, Barbara Lazaroff and Wolfgang Puck, who are two of the most hospitable people that you will ever meet, I really learned the importance of hospitality and how important that part of the restaurant really is, that you need good food and you need great people, and great service. And they really taught me that. And I learned how important it is to take care of guests and to especially those that come on a regular basis because that's so important. But also that, um, you know, the guests are family. And I think from them, I always think about, I really always think about that. Interesting. Is that something you instill on your front and or back of the house today? I think that I don't even need to instill it because I'm lucky enough to find people that that aspect is as important to them as it is to me. Got it. That's great. So your life as a chef, how do you, how do you measure success? You know, it's sort of a tricky question because I think a lot of people measure success by, um, say, in the restaurant business. Or in Hollywood, too. How many awards you get, right? Does that make you more successful? Or how many TV shows you have? Or maybe how many restaurants? But uh, if that's what success means to those people, then they are successful. But I think for me, I think it really means, success to me is if you're living the dream, right? And that definitely is what I'm living. And therefore, I find myself very successful. Because I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. You know what I thought you may say? What? I thought you may say the day you were on Julia Child's show and you made a dessert and she cried. <laughs> do you, what do you remember about that day? Uh, well, I just... It was sort of twofold. One is that that was my second show that I was on with her. So prior to that, 
so prior to that, I was on a, it was called Master Chef. So it was the first time she was branching out and not doing either a show by herself or a show with Jacques Pan. Mm. She had this idea of doing uh, a series that she called Master Chefs. And she went around the country working with different people in different, or different uh, chefs, different cooks, different, making different food. So she started that series off in Los Angeles with me trying to do a baking show. And it really was not pleasant whatsoever. And it wasn't pleasant for me. I don't think it was pleasant for her. And I think we, she learned a lot about how to do the show from then on. So it's kind of a guinea pig. So when they called me up two years later or three years later and said, okay, we're ready to do it again. It's like, nope. But they, she assured me that it was going to be different and we we're going to do it in her kitchen and we would both be together rather than me being by myself. And so I, I gave it a try, you know. And um, so in this episode, I was making a uh, fruit tart, but it was a fruit tart that was made with a brioche, uh, brioche bread sort of crust and then it had some sautéed stone fruit on it and uh it was poured over and then it had a sauce and anyway it's one of my favorite desserts that I had was making at uh Campanile at the time so she before starting the the show and she likes to try to run her shows in real time rather than shows that are edited so she said that as soon as we need to wrap up meaning we have two or three more minutes I'm going to hit you on the hip, and that means pick it up because you got about two more minutes. So I'm going along, and we're talking, and I'm sautéing this fruit, to, just ready to garnish it. And the fruit is super hot because it's in this boiling um, wine-sugar-syrup mixture. And I get that tap, and it's like, all right, that means plate it. So I spoon it on, cut the bite, put it in her mouth, and then like these tears start rolling down her face. And I'm like, oh, my, I just burnt Julia Tiles. This was going so well. And then I burnt her, you know, and I'm just looking at her. And I, don't, I never saw the episode, by the way, but I, I, I know what my face felt like, but it was probably really horrified. And then she says just something so kind, like this is a dessert to cry from or something like that. So that's my fame to claim, but I don't know if it's my mark of success. Got it, got it, got it. So let's talk about process. The, uh, the process of creating a restaurant, a book, a dish the perfect loaf of bread, which you've did hundreds of times before you found the right one. Talk about process or a recipe for success. You know, that's an easy, that's an easy answer when it comes to say a restaurant or a book and kind of even a loaf of bread because I think you've got that vision, you have that end product, right? But creating a dish I think is a lot more, I mean, the road is not as straight. It's a little bit, it's much more convoluted. At least it is for me. Um, there are uh, chefs that the way that they create a dish is on a pad of paper, right? So they'll, they'll draw a plate and then they'll draw the elements they want on the plate, right? And that's what they follow. And problem is it's not always good because it's not always, it is, it's not always as successful thinking about it as when you use your senses. And I think and I'm not saying I'm a better cook than other people's, but I'm just saying that's not the way that I work. I don't work with a pen and a piece of paper. I'm usually inspired by a ingredient. And when I choose that ingredient, it's the ingredient that I want to let shine, and it's the ingredient that I want to have all the other elements complement. But every once in a while, it might be a plated dish that I see that I'm inspired by. So for instance, a few years ago, I went to, has anyone been to the restaurant uh, Destroyer, uh, Jordan Kahn's restaurant? 
He's a very unique person, to say the least. Anyway, he had a super interesting salad, and I had never seen this before, where he played it in a bowl, but it was like backwards, right? And it seems easy. So like, if you can imagine if you have leaves of lettuce, no matter what it is, ordinarily it would be the opening, the open part of the lettuce would be upright, right? That's how you would plate it. But this salad was all plated backwards. But I love the fact that, and the surprise was inside, but I love the look and the fact that it uh, was plated that way. So I do what I often do is I file those things away, like someday I'm going to plate something that way. And I was waiting for the right time to do it. We decided to do a Caesar salad here because uh, I had found a beautiful, beautiful head of baby romaine. And I thought, that's perfect. I'm going ba- to plate it backwards. Anyway, that's what I did. So in that sense, I had that end product in mind. But ordinarily, that's not the case. I bring out the element and I start to build on that ingredient. And sometimes it's an easy build, and other times it takes a long time, including choosing the plate, and from there, finishing what goes with it. And this salad is a perfect, I think, a perfect example of the salad, because it's kind of rather interesting. It's it's built on one of the, the favorite breads that I did at La Brea Bakery, which is the fruit and nut bread. And I love to have croutons in my salad, but in this case, it's a very thin one on the very bottom of the plate, so you get this surprise, and it forces you to go all the way down to the bottom. Interesting. Thank you. I love that. So you have restaurants in other cities other than this corner, and I saw that you said before that you feel like, you feel like sometimes you're living a lie because you're not doing everything in your kitchen, but you're getting credit for it. What are the challenges of not being everywhere at the same time? Well, I think that once you make that decision not to be at your one restaurant from the time your coworkers come in to by the time they leave, then you have to accept the fact that it might not go exactly as it would go, whether it's the food or the service, while you're there. And so I know that I did make that decision that I do want to take vacations and I don't want to live every moment here. And so what you have to do is you have to find great people that you can trust and also accept that when things go wrong, you can go back and fix them, but they're not going to be as perfect as if you were there. Okay, so when it comes to trust, what do you look for in the people you choose to represent you or your restaurants? Well, I, first of all, you look for their worth ethic. You know, you want to make sure that they treat the people that they work with with uh, respect. And I think that's really, really important that they can develop a team, you know, um, because, you know, we're not that's what it takes. It takes a team to, to work in a restaurant and it takes a team to work in many, you know, many fields. So we're not only unique, but certainly in a restaurant, it's a team. So you want to look that, make sure that they're team builders and they, um, that they work well with people. But then also you want to see how, to make sure that they are as dedicated as, as you are, as I am, 
to the food that we that we put out. Make sure that they don't take cut corners to make sure that uh, they are able to recognize when something is less than perfect. All those sorts of things. Is there a certain um, like question or interview question, if you will, that that you like to ask or want to know? Well, I don't. Um, I'm not really part of the interview. Um, process anymore, but when I was, and I'm only not because I'd like to, you know, our managers to be able to hire people that they feel that they could work with. But for me, I when I did do that, it was always, have you eaten my food before? Because if you haven't eaten my food before, how do you know you like it? How do you know you want to make it? And how you, how do you know you want to work here? And I think that that's really important that the people that come to work for us are not people that are just looking for a job. That's great. So more than ever, chefs and restaurateurs are uh, these days pushing, pushing the boundaries, whether it's concepts, creativity, innovation, collaboration, all these buzz terms. What are you most proud of when it comes to this? I'm very proud that I'm not creative because I'm not. I beg to differ. <laughs> I'm not creative. And here, here's why. I just make food that makes sense, but that's not <laughs> creative. But I think that I really am proud of that I've never I've never been uh, pressured to make any food that I don't want to make. So meaning that let's say if we'd want to talk about maybe trends for instance. You know, there is I think younger cooks are very excited about using a lot of gadgets that plug in for instance. <laughs> and I'm not that's not, it's just not my thing. I don't like things that plug in. I, Damn. people all the time come to say, you know, come in and say, can you, can you give us a tour of your kitchen? It's like, yeah, come on in. You're going to see a couple of stoves and you're going to see a fryer. We have a fryer and, uh, and we have tables and that's about all we have in our kitchen. But I guess what I'm saying is that I'm true to making the food that I believe in and the food that just resonates for me. So I haven't felt pressure to come up with processes that kind of manipulate the food in a different way. I can appreciate it. And I love to eat at people's restaurants that are, that have that interest, but it's just not mine. Got it. And I think that, I think you could taste food that's made by someone that believes in what they're doing. And I think you can taste the difference by food that people that are confused. Hmm. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. What three words would your cook or sous chef use to describe you? Let's see. Few or a lot? And... Like X-rated or not X-rated or whatever. Okay. No, all. Can everyone handle I'll it? I'll be proper. <laughs> no, I think that they they know that I'm opinionated, and I am. And I think they know that I'm focused, and I am. But I think they would also say that I'm encouraging, because I really do. I really encourage um, the cooks that I work with to be better cooks. That's good to hear. And fair. Okay. Okay, great. We're going to wrap up in a minute for this part, but thank you for sharing all this. I think you are incredibly creative and innovative. You have a mozzarella bar right there. That, that, that's genius. But we aren't creative. <laughs> yeah. 
Sam, you know, grilled cheese nights, mozzarella bar. That's, that's Gruyere and bread. How creative is that? But it's the right cheese on oh. the right bread. Okay. <laughs> so there's a lot going on in L.A. right now. For you, what makes a chef or a restaurant stand out? Besides great food and great service? Yeah, or maybe like the, the last great experience you had here. I know for myself what makes a great cook is I really, I love to go to a restaurant where I feel that the food is very focused. Those are my favorite restaurants. But I think most of all, and you know, working at the mozzarella bar is wonderful because I get to be in the dining room without having to stop by tables, which is really uncomfortable. But I get to visit people at the mozzarella bar and I get to overhear the conversations. And what is the most satisfying remark to hear is something to the effect of, I dreamed about having the orchiette last night. So I think that's what makes a great restaurant is when you dream about a certain dish. Yeah, that's excellent. Okay, with that, I believe you're going to tell us about some of the... Are we going to let them eat right now, and then we'll come back? I think we should let them eat. Yeah. How's the salad? And the salad looks beautiful and smells beautiful. Great. Enjoy the salad, and we'll be back up to hear about the next courses. So you're eating a salad that's hopefully perfectly dressed, right? Looks like a petticoat. I've never eaten a petticoat. But um, it's just... Layers of flavor, and I love when I compose a salad, except for like when it's a chopped salad, something like that, when all the ingredients are the same size and they're tossed together. I really love to layer the salad in such a way that I'm sure that the way you're eating it is the way I intended it to taste. And that's, the, that's when you make a successful salad, by layering it, you achieve that rather than a salad that's tossed together where the nuts fall to one side, you know what I'm saying? And the, and, and the persimmons are somewhere else. This way, I know you're eating it. And you're eating a salad that's, that has a base of a fruit and nut bread that is dressed with the um, sherry wine and mustard vinaigrette. And it has layers of the chicory and persimmons and candied pecan and a little bit of uh, parmesan shavings in there. So chicory is a whole family of bitter greens, so you can taste that it's somewhat bitter. This one, this variety is called uh, a Castle Franco. Enjoy. We'll be back up in a little bit. Hey everyone, so sorry to interrupt. Wanted to share a little bit about a second podcast that the team here at Beyond the Plate produces called Cook Tracks. And if you're familiar, a heads up, we are in production on some more episodes of Cook Tracks right now. But if you're not familiar, you may have seen this pop up into your Beyond the Plate podcast feed if you subscribe to the podcast. Long story short, Cook Tracks is a brand new way to cook. It is a audio recipe cook along of sorts. You can follow at Cook Tracks on Instagram or visit at cooktracks.com to get the recipe and a list of ingredients. So basically in each episode, a chef or culinary personality will be right alongside you, actually in your ear, uh, taking you step-by-step through a dish or meal in real time. So you're going to get some tips and 
good stories to keep you entertained while you're upping your cooking game a little bit. You don't need a recipe and you don't need to pause and press play and watch a video and all that. Everything is in real time. So we currently have six episodes with some of the best chefs and cooks that we know. Rachel Ray has a couple, Gail Simmons, Rocco Despierto, Stephanie Izard, and Jimmy Papadopoulos from Chicago. So listen on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on and let us know what you think. Hi, everyone. Really quick, we're not going to stop you for that long, but we just need a few minutes of your time. Nancy's going to take us through the next couple courses and then we'll let you eat. Uh, So the pasta is uh, about to be coming out of the kitchen. And anyone that uh, understands pasta knows that we don't wait for the pasta, the pasta waits for us. So you got to eat it, okay? The two pastas, uh, and I know that you've chosen which one you that you uh, want to be eating, but the two of them are, we make in-house. They're both fresh pastas, and we do use a lot of dried pasta in our restaurant also because I love dried pasta. But Tonight, they're fresh pastas, and they cook a lot faster. One is a uh, mezzaluna that is uh, filled with, and the mezzaluna is the half moon shape, uh, and it's stuffed with a butternut squash filling, and there's some grated amaretti cookie on top. And the other one is the one that people dream of. That's the dream of mozza. It's an orchiette pasta. It's uh, an ear-shaped uh, uh, pasta, that's the shape of it, a perfect cup to hold the sausage and Swiss chard filling. So those are the two pastas that are coming to the table. And then so that we don't have to come back and disturb you for the, for the next course after the pasta, which is the sakandi, you were given a choice of a meat and a fish. The fish is a cod. Uh, I think the cod is coming out of Baja, and it's served with uh, chowda sauce. That is a cream-based sauce that has leeks and fennel and celery, white wine, garlic. And the tagliata, which is a sliced steak, is finished with extra virgin olive oil and balsamic vinegar. And it comes with a rucola salad with some Parmigiano cheese layer in there. And then we have a family-style vegetable for the table. There's one broccolini, which is sautéed with chilies and vinegar. And the other is parsnips with caraway seed. Sounds like a good meal to me. To me, too. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your meal, everybody. So as part, I mentioned I host a podcast called Beyond the Plate. And as part of that, a big portion is social impact and how chefs give back to their community. Chefs are some of the most giving people that I come across. They are more than the food you see on their plate. They get asked to do, they could probably do an event every night of the week where they're asked to donate their time and their food and just 500 tasting portions and things like that. Um, And they have to balance that out. Um, But they do it for great causes. Sometimes it's their own, sometimes it's to help a friend. Uh, Sometimes it's a employee that may have been affected by something. So I just want to touch on social impact with Nancy because she's done a lot of work supporting organizations, um, school garden work, I believe, here in L.A., and Meals on Wheels, and Alex's Lemonade, an amazing event you all have out here, a Philadelphia-based organization, and probably many more. So I just want to ask how you choose where you give your time and or money when it comes to social impact and giving back. Uh, Well, you know... 
First of all, there's no charity that's not a good charity, as we all know. And so sometimes it's hard to turn down charities because they're all good. But it is true what you said. Being in the restaurant business, uh, it's become a known fact that that's the easiest way to uh, raise money for for worthwhile causes. And so you got to pick and choose because you can't say yes to everything. So I've sort of... Uh, I've sort of narrowed the charities that I align myself with that have to do with childhood hunger, cancer research. I think those are two charities for myself that it's really hard to say no to. So I do a lot of work for an organization that's called Share Our Strength, and their sort of motto is No Kid Hungry. So I do a lot of work for them, and I do a lot of work for um, Alex's Lemonade, which raises money for childhood cancer research. Uh, and then more than that, but those are the two ones that I, I mainly am involved with. I happen to be on the leadership council of Share Our Strength, oh, so thank you for your work. Absolutely. <laughs> um, is there a moment that you realized um, it was important to give back or a moment that maybe still inspires you to this day? Well, I mean, I think the moment that I realized that the community of uh, chefs and restaurateurs had that ability to raise money was back in 1982. Well, probably it was 1983. So Spago opened in 82. And in 1983, Wolfgang and Barbara decided to hold a fundraiser for Meals on Wheels to raise money to feed uh, homebound elderly people. And he, held, he hosted that event in the parking lot of Spago. Uh, and he invited six chef friends from around the country and they raised a whole lot of money for this cause. And I was just really, really, really moved by that experience. And that was, for me, sort of the kickoff. And I think for myself and many other uh, chefs around the country. And so I do spend a lot of time traveling. And that's my way of, of giving back. And I'm very proud and honored that I have that draw that I can do that. Do you want to explain the dessert? Oh, I do want to explain. <laughs> so uh, the two choices that you were given tonight were, an, again, two very seasonal choices. One was a pumpkin tart with dates and a bourbon uh, gelato. And the other was, uh, the way, best way to describe it is a apple pie in a bag uh, with caramel gelato. Both very comforting desserts and a wonderful way to end the meal. Excellent. Let's do a quick, fun speed round. Question number one, what did you have for dinner last night? Last night, I actually went to a little celebratory uh, event at Republic Restaurant here in Los Angeles. It was their five-year anniversary, and I didn't eat at it. And so as soon as I came back to the restaurant, one of the cooks that was working at the pizzeria that's working on a new uh, Piatto, which happens to be a stuffed shell, uh, meaning a pasta shell, with uh, ricotta and spinach. That's what I ate. Got it. And you can find it on Monday nights at the pizzeria starting next Monday. Perfect. <laughs> Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Oh, I love the smell uh, in the pastry kitchen when they're browning butter. Nice. With vanilla bean. That's Yum. an infectious smell. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. When it goes too far and it becomes burnt. <laughs> is that burnt? What, what is that? Burn? 
Noisette. Uh, Noisette. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what pisses? Or black you, butter. Black butter. Yeah. yeah. What pisses you off in the kitchen? You know, I I really get angry at food that is wasted, and I think that myself and my partner Joe Bastianich spend more time going through the garbage to see what people are throwing away and why they throw it away. So I really hate waste. Interesting. Uh, what makes you happy in the kitchen? I think I'm the happiest when a cook comes to me with a dish that they're working on or they uh, want to work on. And uh, when it's presented to me, it's so much a Nancy dish that I can not only embrace it and help them with it, but I'm so always just so impressed that they know me. Nice. So I hear you don't like when you entertain at your home a lot. Yes. And I hear you don't like when people bring food to your house when you entertain. No. <laughs> that means, did you hear that? When I invite you over. So when you go to someone else's home, what do you bring? Red wine. <laughs> no, but I just have to explain that a little. The reason why I don't like it is that I don't like potluck dinners because there's inevitably somebody that you invite over that insists on bringing the strawberry ambrosia that when you put it on the plate and it starts to melt and it interferes with the rest of the food, it ruins it. Fair. Fair? Fair. <laughs> In closing off, a couple questions here. Knowing all that you know now, what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? You know, I think that when I was 25 is when I was lucky enough to land a job at Michael's Restaurant in Santa Monica, uh, and that's the year that it opened. I wasn't an opening uh, employee, but maybe four or five af months after it opened. And I uh, applied to cook in Michael's Kitchen, and I was interviewed by the manager who was looking for someone to help him work the computer, which was the ticket ordering mechanism for, for the kitchen. And so he was so excited to see someone coming in and look for a job. He told me there was no room in the kitchen. There was only room at this position, which had to do with ordering and computers, which, by the way, I'm terrible at. Anyway, I somehow had the wherewithal to know that take whatever's offered to you and get your foot in the door. And, um, and so I accepted that position, and I went back to the car where my best friend was waiting for me, and I said, I got a job, not in the kitchen, but I'm going to be doing sort of office type of work. And she said, don't take that job. You'll never, they'll never move you out of it. Um, and I didn't listen to her, and I'm really happy that I didn't because I feel like that's where I, I am where I am today is that I had that sense of taking whatever's offered to you if that's the place you want to be. So it's not the advice that I'm saying I would give myself. It was just recognizing that I did the right thing 20, when, yeah. back in 1979 when yeah. I was 25 years old. Got it. Got it. Okay. If the world was your ball of mozzarella, what headline would you hope to read about you in the Wall Street Journal? Oh, that's an easy one. The Wall Street Journal has decided to rent out Moza every month. 
Excellent. Thank you, Nancy. I appreciate it. Thank you. We're going to open the floor up to the audience. And I don't think there's a microphone, but shout your question and then I will repeat it. Wait, there, there is a microphone. Alex is going to walk around. First one right here. Good. Restaurant tours. Let's see. Are there anybody out there? <laughs> you know, the, my favorite restaurant tours are the restaurant tours that I visited recently. So let's just narrow it down, I think. Let's say uh, Los Angeles. How about that? And last night, where was I last night? Oh, I know. I was at Walter's. Walter Mansky. How about that? Excellent. More questions? Right here? I'm always curious about the, the interesting plates that restaurants use to serve the food on. Have you ever saw a plate that you thought, well, I, and that inspired your dish? Well, well, the shape of the plate, yes. You know, and because it's sort of important to sort of mimic like the shape of what the dish that you're working on. So, but it's like sort of twofold. I mean, several layers of, it's easy to say that you want, well, let's put it this way. I'm cheap. So you can see what you're eating on. You're eating on round white plates, first of all. So, but besides that, uh, and I do really appreciate really fine bone china, I may add, but in a restaurant, in a busy restaurant, there's a lot of breakage. And so what you don't understand is when you have that very upper level, you're paying for that in the price of the meals that you eat, knowing that there's a lot of, a lot of breakage. But, you know, sometimes we work around, like, for instance, I'm just looking at what you're eating right now. So the Borsalino, which has the gelato with it. It's nice to have in that bowl shape because it captures the meltingness of the gelato, whereas a slice of a triangular tart wouldn't fit in that bowl. So we do use a lot of shapes. I don't like a lot of color to kind of interfere with what you're eating. I'm not a fan of, say, black plates or busy plates, and I'm not really a fan of crazy shapes because I find them really distracting. However... I wouldn't mind everything not just being round and white, but my pocketbook is happier for that choice. <laughs> uh, another question right back here. Why extra large eggs? Because it sounds so good, right? <laughs> but, you're, but are you thinking about like a cookbook? Yeah. I just think that... Um, it's, uh, you know, when you're writing a cookbook and you're calling for eggs that you're not weighing, because when I learned how to bake, I learned how to weigh eggs. So it didn't matter what size. So you have to pick, you have to pick your egg so that you're sort of on the same level as the person that's buying that egg. And so ex I just have always used extra large eggs because that's what comes to me. Really? That's standard in your kitchen? Yeah. Huh. Because, but, you know, you can get medium, right? Yeah, yeah. Or and you can also have your own chickens, which I had for a long time, and then you get all different shapes, but, you know, all different sizes. But really, if you're a baker, the real way to bake is by weighing your eggs, not right. counting them. Yeah. Interesting. Question right here and then over there. What is your absolute favorite comfort meal or go-to food? that you like to, you look forward to cooking at home for yourself? Well, let's see. If you came over to my house and you opened my refrigerator, you would see that there was not one thing in there. But I have a beautiful Samsung 
gorgeous refrigerator, okay? So I, I have condiments and nothing in, nothing in my refrigerator. But if I had to say, what is my go-to comfort food? Wow. I have a guess. I don't know if I have one. Yeah, red wine. How about that? That always, that's always my comfort food. But, you know, comfort food is just sort of a nice umbrella for food that's just really simply prepared, you know? Simply prepared and not too many ingredients. Did you love grilled cheeses or did that happen to be a good canvas for your breads? You know, I did, but the grilled cheese that I loved or the grilled cheese of of my day was the one that was served at my junior high school cafeteria. Uh, the one that came in the paper, square paper sleeve. Yeah. That was uh, cut on the bias, square piece of white bread, very greasy. I love that I one. Cut on the bias, that's triangles, not squares. Yeah. We got that. A square cut on the bias. <laughs> Put in that, that square. Yeah. Envelope. Got it. Question back here? Um, I was wondering if you had any experiences um, as a woman coming up in the kitchen, if they affected who you are as a chef today, or if maybe the kitchen is not a place where you think about gender. You know, uh, that's that question is a question that's been asked a lot, in, especially in recent months. But I remember when I opened Campanile and probably one of the first journalists that interviewed me, because I didn't really get interviewed before owning a restaurant, asked me what it was like to be a woman in the kitchen. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I've never been a man in a kitchen, you know. And so, but, but besides that, I do have to say also that I was a very lucky that I, I only worked for a few Chef owners, they were all, I mean, besides Wolfgang, they were sort of self-taught cooks, college-educated, where gender really wasn't an issue. And I also grew up in California. And in California, my mentors were Alice Waters and Joyce Goldstein and Judy Rogers and Mary Sue Milliken and Evan Kleinman, you know. So it was all Barbara Trump, you know. They were all women, so I really didn't realize that this industry could be a difficult uh, industry for a woman. And so I don't have a single horror story. And I know that I'm one of the lucky ones because there's a lot of my uh, fellow female chefs that probably do have other stories. And I also grew up in a household with a family that always taught me that I could be and do and become anything I wanted to do. And so I just never had that, which is lucky. We have one more question right here. I think that will be our last apology. You, you just impressed me as a person who is um, on a continual improvement process and, and sort of always learning. And so I'm just wondering, what's the next thing you want to learn? I don't know if there's something else that I want to learn, but I think there may be things that I want to redo. Like, for instance, I don't think I've baked a loaf of bread in about 20 years, so I might want to go bake a loaf of bread. Thank you, Nancy. Thank, Thank all you. of you for being here. Thank Appreciate you. it. I hope you enjoyed your meal and enjoyed the conversation.
And um, do not forget to pick up a copy of the book on the way out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this bonus episode. To find more on Chef Nancy Silverton, go to la.pizzeriamoza.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on Twitter at BT Plate Podcast and Facebook. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Eaton, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you to Tom Osborne. Our music has been composed by Goldford. As always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.